we're going to be taking through the progress of our black comedy feature film. Who are you, by the way? Nobody, nobody knows who we are. <laughs> what this is, is a DIY cinema podcast for DIY filmmakers. The idea is that you don't wait for permission, you just start. This is our first feature film, something we're going to do together. Uh, you're going to get it warts and all. <laughs> <laughs> so we just go into it. I kind of think we could. This is DIY Cinema Cult. Uh, hello, Mark. Hello, mate. How are you doing? You feeling I'm well? Good. I'm feeling well. I'm. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm looking well. I'm. I've, I've got that kind of end of lockdown feeling where I really don't how, I mean how many times a week do you actually change your clothes this is a question not, that going through not a lot I, and, and Debbie was kind of despairing at me as lockdown kind of uh, settled in because I, I just would dress like a madman all week yeah. um, and I think I kind of re- I realized that I've got a default setting when it comes to fashion yeah. and it's it's not great it's not it's a good not- look it's not a good look. Well, I mean, you, you you must obviously have to sort of, well, you must dress yourself up for these podcasts. This must be the the bit of the day where you're yeah. like presenting yourself to the outside world. Yeah. I always think you look quite smart uh, in at least that upper, you know, that head and shoulders shot in Zoom. Uh, yeah, it's just a dark T-shirt. That always kind of makes you look a bit smarter, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, but it's just shorts and no shoes and socks. Yeah. So there's nothing really going on here. I've gone full Robinson Crusoe now. I've just got cut down jeans. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, socks. I can't remember the last time I, I looked at or wore any socks. Um, yeah. Fairly, fairly regular t shirt changing, but I'm not sure I'm showering as regularly as I would normally have showered. I, I decided my look ended up being a, a children's TV presenter having a breakdown, was, was the look I kind of settled into. <laughs> And the thing was, then we'd go out to the shops, like we'd queue up outside, you know, the co-op to do the shops. And I'd be dressed like pushing this buggy. Two metres apart from everyone like, else. Like, like a mental, I look crazy. And Debbie would have to, I mean, she wanted to stand two metres away from me because she was so embarrassed. But <laughs> I just, I was fine with it. I was like, look, look, it's a pandemic. You can dress how you want in a pandemic. There's no fashion laws. Yeah, but it's so unfortunate that your other half is kind of one of the most fashionable ladies on earth, and <laughs> spent a lot, spent a lot of time hanging out with super fashionable people in LA for a career. Yeah, uh, but now she's got your wonderful shape. Now she's to look she's at got all day me. Long. Yeah, she's got me. So she probably dreamt <laughs> she'd be with some real fashionista, but she's got me. Sorry. And now we've discovered a way to live with only wearing one outfit a week then we don't really need to buy clothes anymore. I think we're kind of environmentally friendly, you know. Listen, mate, now I've touched the, the kind of bottom of the barrel in my nervous breakdown kind of dress code. I'm, there's no <laughs> turning back. I don't need to buy any more clothes. Just noticed that someone is in our waiting room. We've got oh, a fantastic we have our guest. guest coming. We have our guest coming, don't we? Yes, we do. So David Cecil, who um, is a writer, producer uh, of uh, uh, a new feature film uh, called Imperial Blue, which is done in a very much a DIY aesthetic. Fantastic we had a watch story. last night, didn't we? Yeah, we, we had a did. Wa- 
yeah, but obviously not sat next to each not other on together, the sofa. No. But uh, I, I, I mean, there's lots of interesting aspects to it. It's filmed internationally. It looks amazing. I mean, I have to yeah. say, it looks like a looks like a very high budget film. It's beautifully shot. Great cast, and uh, I'm I'm very excited to find out all about it. So, uh, should we invite yeah. David in? Yes, let's, let's him do in. it. Okay. You are listening to the debut feature film podcast. This is DIY Cinema Cult. David, there he is. Oh, and he's on the call. Look, busy, busy, He's busy. He's a very busy producer. Yeah, busy producers are always on the call. I was just making that up. <laughs> I'm on. Stocks, um, and, stocks and shares, stocks yeah, yeah, and shares. Absolutely. I'll sell. Yeah. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Oh, it's good to see you've got your drink ready. Yeah. Uh, David, David, meet Mark. Yes, Hi, David, Mark. nice to meet you. I'm Mark, lovely yeah, to meet you. Good to meet you, man. You, man. I yeah. think we should we should all raise a glass. I think yeah. if, if we've all got one, there we are. There we go. Wow, it's very it. fancy, Mark. What's that? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Look at that. I've gone. Well, I I always stick to a gin martini. We got these fancy glasses. <laughs> and um, are there any tricks to your martini? We stick to a strict recipe uh, that Louis Bunuel always was uh, mm-hmm. was a, a big big kind of advocate of. So we basically stuck to his strict. Okay. Uh, very dry. Very pure. Not a lot kind of going on. Very simple. Pretty much just gin. Right. Pure gin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. a, lot of, a lot of gin. And, and actually, Mark has done a great job of keeping up the um, the Bunuel uh, uh, routine throughout yeah. each one of the episodes. Right. But I, I've resorted to a plain old gin and tonic with yeah. some oranges chucked in there. Nice. So, yeah. What, what, what are you drinking there, David? I'm, I'm, almost, I'm a bit embarrassed, actually, I have to say. Um <laughs> It's a Chardonnay spritzer. It can't get more girly than that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I just, Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I salute you, both of your livers, for undertaking this at five in the afternoon. I used to work at um, at a very sort of selective a bar in central London, which was full of old alco- alcoholics called the yeah. French House. Indeed. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Know it well, yeah. 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 And um, if you got someone's martini wrong, you were out. You know, you got oh, really? a couple of chances. And but yeah, so I I I'm pretty particular about mine now. Yeah. Um, oh right, nice. Quite, quite um, what's your Bunuel. favorite mix? How do you mix it? I well, mean, what's quite, your quite style? Quite similar to Bunuel's, but it's about temperature. That was the thing. Yeah. So yeah. You got to put the uh, the shaker in the fridge. You've got to have the ice. You know, like properly iced. And, iced. Uh, yeah. yeah. Damn yeah. cold. Yeah. Damn cold ice, and then. Um, you just you swirl the vermouth or whatever you're using around in the ice and then pour it off through yeah. the strainer so the ice just has the flavor of the vermouth yeah and then yeah, you yeah. add your double shot uh shake it around and the only thing you're allowed to add on top of that and you don't you don't shake it for long that's why you get everything so cold so you don't dilute yeah. the gin it's just get it to the right temperature show it the vermouth in the glass the glass ideally has been in the fridge as well but that's yeah not yeah the yeah pub. And then finally, and I always did this, but some people didn't like it, is the zest of lemon curled perfectly round so it spirals in. And it's oh. got something oil. There's a citrus oil in the zest that you don't get anywhere else in a lemon. It's delicious. Right. Oh, you, I mean, you, that's very close that to the Bunuel, sounds, isn't it? It sounds very close. I mean, I'm, that's pretty much what I'm doing, except I do not fridge my glass or oh. shaker. 
Hut Hut Hut. Hut. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> I'm sacked from sin. the French house. Yeah, you wouldn't last a minute. <laughs> we, we, we were sort of both um, in the in the 90s and uh, early noughties, sort of both working in Soho. So mm. we may well have stumbled across your path because the French house yeah. was certainly on our radar of, yeah. uh, of post-work um, media haunts. Uh, yes. And so, yeah, I'm sure we bumped into you or, or accidentally uh, yeah. bought, bought a bad drink from you at one point. Probably. <laughs> I probably screwed up your martini. But you're in, you're in <laughs> London at the moment, but you're, but in yeah. theory, I guess you'll be, you'll be heading back to, to uh, so our listeners don't know, of course, but yeah. you actually live full-time in, in Uganda. Yeah. Yeah. I, li- I live in Kampala in Uganda, which is, um, beautiful city on the lake, uh, Lake Victoria. Well, actually, it's called Lake Nalubale, but um, it got renamed Victoria at some point. And so, yeah, and it's a gorgeous town, you know, it's full of amazing locations. Uh, One of the reasons that we chose to shoot our film in Uganda was not only because I was living there, but everywhere you look, that's a great location. Yeah. And it's very easy to get access. So we've heard you were a barman, back at the French house in Soho. What is What are the dots in between that? What, what's your kind of background in terms of career? Because it sounds like you've done loads of different things. Yes, that, so you're right. So I, I started off in the free party scene, which uh, is actually how I ended up getting in touch with Aaron here, because yeah. a friend of mine knew I had a background in squat parties and so on. Uh, so yeah, and I think that experience of um, the kind of freedom and self-rule that's possible on the free party scene made me love Uganda which is a very liberal country in the old school sense you know there's not the state doesn't do very much for you and when you do encounter the state you sort of try and keep it at a bit of a distance so um (laughs) I found that in Uganda I was able to do things that I was unable to do in London except when I've been on the free party scene so for example you want to set up a cinema if you're in the squat scene, you can do that because you can set up a cinema in your squat and you don't have to do the red tape and licensing. Uganda's yeah. quite similar. In truth, um, if there are anyone, if there's anyone listening who thinks, oh, either that's not a true depiction of Uganda or how dare you, um, I would qualify it that I think the advantage that countries like Uganda have as a shooting location over other countries like Kenya and South Africa, where it's very instituted and established, is that in Uganda, almost anything is possible. Uh, You're not exploiting people or dodging the law. You can pay your licenses and you can pay people the correct amount. It's just in Uganda, things happen a bit faster and there's less people trying to get in the middle of it and get their cut. Uganda's not very capitalist. It's a sort of quite a friendly exchangey economy where people do each other favors and people work together. So yeah, I like. I think there's a strong analogy between my background in the free party scene and my ability to get along well in the Ugandan scene. And then how how did your kind of film career? Because after being sort of in the free parties, obviously, which you know we we we've got a kind of connection with and connected to my documentary. How did you kind of start a film career uh, as in a, a producer and a writer, which you, you currently are? So, uh, it, like all the things that happened to me in my life, it was by accident, not by intention. So, um, you know, I got involved in the free party scene through a chance meeting. And I got involved in film through just being in the wrong place at the wrong time and getting sucked <laughs> into a project that had gone wrong. And so, 
I my original ambition in Kampala was completely idiotic, which was to set up a, a repertory cinema where people could watch Martin Scorsese films and Fassbender and um, you know African classics of the 70s that you literally couldn't find even on DVD. And this is mid mid 2000s in Uganda. And um, although my ambition was sort of well placed in that there was a small market for what I was trying to do, it would, there was no business sense to it. So when I finally did get the, the cinema up and running, we knew already before we opened that it would lose money, it would probably go wrong and flop. So we were like, well, me, we is me and a bunch of rasters that I was working with. And so we decided to make it a live music venue and sell beer because that can't go wrong, right? So <laughs> and indeed we were right, it, it didn't go wrong and the cinema wasn't very popular. But me being involved in film, and I was so doggedly determined against all odds to make my repertory cinema happen, despite it obviously not gonna work. And um, so I was firing off letters to a film school up the road and they weren't really being read by anyone. And then all of a sudden I got this group of students turned up at the cinema slash bar that I was running and said, oh, we found all these letters from you, they'd thrown away. And the guy who was, you know, formerly running the department has left suddenly, would you like to take over the film school with us? <laughs> so I said, sure, yeah. Um, and, um, that, and so I started a relationship with this um, film school that was like housed in a big university. And we, so we ran that for a couple of years and that was great, you know? So I, I got to know a lot about the Ugandan film industry. So your and so your film Imperial Blue did that kind of come out of the the, the film school that you were running? I mean, and the, the connections that you built up there? Yeah, right. Partly. Okay. So um, while I was um, mismanaging the film school and trying to juggle <laughs> that with running a bar and having a family and all the crazy shit that happens to you when you're an entrepreneur in East Africa, <laughs> um, I. Um, I invited a couple of people over to come and do courses and help with the admin at the film school. And one of them was a guy that I'd worked on the free party scene with called Dan Moss, AKA Dan Hecate. And uh, Dan, um, he makes quite sort of avant-garde challenging films, uh, science fiction short films, particularly was his speciality. And uh, we talked immediately about making a feature in Uganda. And when, you know, we made a short together that's not very successful, but it was a good trial run for the big thing. And as shorts are, and we quickly realized that we could do so much more in Uganda on a budget, on the kind of budget we were looking at than we could in the UK. I mean, that's obvious, but it was good to confirm it in practice. Yeah. So, so what, while he was working there, we also were like keeping an eye on the, um, both the teachers and the students at the film school that we thought were promising. And one of my students, a guy called Semalema Daniel Katenda, uh, actually became the producer of our film, Imperial Blue. And what impressed me about him was um, he used to sleep through all my lessons, but at the end of the lesson, he had the best questions. So, and I don't know how he did it. And it was that kind of hustler that I thought we needed to get. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of led to it being like, uh, you know, working with a with a bunch of sort of talented locals and then getting uh, Dan over? Uh, what, what led you actually thinking, right, we can make a film? And, and how on earth 
did you kind of wrangle, I suppose, the the administrative side of that with the, I suppose, the commercial impulse of like getting a budget together to make a film? I mean, how did you kind of get that? How did you get it going off the ground? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really, that's a really interestingly phrased question, actually, uh, sincerely, because there is a huge, there's a gulf between artistic ambition, commercial ambition, practicality on the ground, and you know, and the final outcome that you produce at the very end of all that, there's like four. Those four things often stand wide apart. And um, you know, I'm. I would have said if I had my younger self had seen my older self, we would have said, well, of course you're going to make art house films. You're not going to make action movies or horror movies, are you? Maybe it's one silly horror movie once, but you know, you're a serious <laughs> guy. You're a serious filmmaker. But, um, what what actually emerged from our dialogue and from our kind of interaction with Uganda and the story that we started developing was that actually we kind of wanted to make a genre film. We wanted to make a film that almost everyone could enjoy that wasn't sort of very high art. And Dan wanted to, Dan liked working with me because I, I've got a better sort of ear for drama and dialogue, whereas he's much more wacky with the ideas and yeah, more visually minded. So we thought we'd be a good writing team. And how do we go from wrangling from one sort of one stage to the other was we started, it started with a script. <laughs> <laughs> good place to start as any. It started with a script and we started with a couple of great locations. So we knew we were going to shoot it around this area of Western Uganda that has the most fantastic lakes. Uh, called the Crater Valley Lakes. Dan came up with a concept about a, a group of travelers, like kind of crusty travelers, psychonauts, looking for a fabled drug in the jungle. Indiana Jones, but psychedelic version. And there's elements of sort of uh, Aguirre, Wrath of God, you know, those kind of people journeying yeah. into yeah. find this kind of some kind of treasure in, in the jungle, in the forest, and at the same time losing their soul or maybe finding it. We didn't, and this is, I'm sort of flagging something that I'm gonna to touch on later because we didn't really think that there was anything problematic about making a kind of white man in Africa type film, as long as we, we took the piss out of the genre. So we're like, we can make a white man in Africa film. We're well positioned to do that, being white men in Africa. And <laughs> we, we think it's something that hasn't been revisited enough with irony and with a post-colonial sensibility it's still mm. so we wanted to make a sort of post-colonial parable and we didn't view that as a problem we thought but it as you know as i will reveal later if you keep watching <laughs> uh, it came back to haunt us oh yeah no. yeah, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. But, well, well one thing that strikes you as soon as you start watching your, your movie uh, david is that it kind of spans three continents the story kind of unfolds and, and the guys traveling through these places uh which is you know incredibly impressive when you realize you're watching a kind of independent feature film uh tell us a bit about that how you kind of that came about yeah sure and i'll come back to the sort of wrangle from script to, to shoot in a minute yeah. but yeah. yeah but how did that how that came about was first of all we realized so there was one moment where we thought, let's set it all in Africa. Let's set it all in Uganda because A, that will provide focus. B, it will be cheaper. And C, it will allow us to focus much more on the African characters. And we actually thought that we were going to have the main, the lead uh, female as the heroine, as the protagonist. 
of the film. Mm. It would be mainly shot from her perspective. And Hugo, the smuggler who comes in looking for this mythical drug, is a kind of interloper into her world. And so the film was framed with her world. And the character is called Chisachi, a farmer. Um, then um, we just sort of kicked ourselves and went, why are we limiting ourselves? You know, this is stupid. We, we're both British. We both could travel back to Britain and shoot some stuff and show how these worlds collide. This peasant farmer's background, this, she's a, you know, a narcotics farmer, but she's basically quite naive, interacts with this very cynical, manipulative drug smuggler who comes from a, a kind of decadent society. And we felt that was a really nice way as well of revisiting the white man in Africa narrative. The white man is not a savior, he's a failure. He's kind of on the run in his own country and running out of options. And then he suddenly gets like the African miracle and it saves him, if anything. So we thought, mm. great, that's a cool, you know, that, that happened to me. Let's include that in the film, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, one, and, and then um, we started, like, there's not a spoiler to say that the film starts in India, and that's the kind of James Bond sequence at the beginning where we have, like, yeah. sort of 10 minutes in India. And um, that, so originally we were going to fake shooting Africa. So we were fake India in Africa. So we actually shot that whole kind of early sequence, but slightly differently imagined with a drug deal going wrong and a chase and stuff like that, all and ending really badly. Um, it, it, we shot that in the Lake region and we put Indian signs up and we basically got a bunch of local Indians. But when we look back at the footage, we were like, this isn't very good, you know, it's it's not really that mm. convincing. We could, we could cheat it some more, we could use CGI, we could do a bunch of stuff, but nah. Um, if we spent a few hundred quid, we could get uh, the director, the lead actor, and the cameraman out to India and freestyle it out there, and that's what we did. Yeah, because wow. I, I think there's a real success in that in your film, in the in the authenticity of the locations, uh, particularly the Uganda sequences, because um, I guess there's so much general knowledge coming from your side, uh, you know, local knowledge. I mean, of of places, just and the locations that you that you had just looked incredible and gave so much value to the yeah. story and to the to the film. Yeah, I mean, in sort of previous podcasts, we've talked a lot about the importance uh, to, a, to a low-budget filmmaker of um, location. And it, it seems to me that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you must have written with the idea that, well, we up our production value, uh, you know, by 2,000% just by writing a scene in this place rather than going here's my perfect story in my head. Uh, now, where do mm. we go and find a place to stage this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I love that location in, in Mumbai. I don't know if it was in Mumbai, if, if we cheated it, but the, the opening chase, the building that has the yeah. bottom floor kind of slightly flooded was fantastic. Yeah, yeah that's um, like an old uh, water works in um, uh, Aurangabad, it, which is a very old town in India. And um, I don't know if you noticed in the shots in the center of the old Indian town, it was most stunning temples and side by side with the kind of ghetto, you know, mm. in contemporary Indian ghetto. And Aurangabad was just an easy town to shoot in, very mellow authorities and very, you know, kind of got, got the idea and didn't stress us. And I think it is stunning. It's, I mean, that opening sequence just without, you know, almost without words with the, 
really good sound design from Richie Hughes, who we work, who we'll talk about maybe later. But reminded me, I, I, I like this is a testament to Dan, the director, not to me. But it reminded me of Tarkovsky or something. It's got this abstract mm. um, sort of love of industrial design in there, so slightly <laughs> stalker esque. And yeah, I'm glad you like that. I, absolutely, it's one of my favourite bits of the film. That. In terms of sort of your, I mean, you know, you you've because you've written and produced. There's a there's almost a tension there, isn't there? Because often writers are writing for uh, whatever. They're not thinking about the budget. They're thinking about what's my amazing story I want to tell. Whereas a producer's thinking, oh god, another location there. Oh, <laughs> another cast member there. Oh, so how do you kind of deal with that tension, particularly in this film? Because you. You've obviously you've got a strong sense of what the location should be, and and then you're you're writing for scene. So how did you how do you kind of work those two kind of parts of the, the yeah? Equation? So I'll approach this by um, just sort of so what I learned very quickly working with the short film that me and Dan Moss made was listen to the director, listen to the guy who has to shoot it, and um, and exactly as he said, you know, you can write all the fantastical, brilliant car chases and helicopter drops and everything you like and napalm explosions, but it's it's most of the time it's not necessary and you can convey that tension in a cleverer way when you're on a low budget. And so talking to someone who's going to be behind the camera and is going to have to set it up is really helpful. And because Dan's quite experienced, he's actually, Dan like often works as an art director on films. So he has to build the props and the sets and everything like that and special effects. So he was like, well, we can do this and we can't do that. The very boring and pithy answer to your question is, yeah, like go through the script with someone who is going to shoot it and they will tell you what the limitations are. And I would say, like, as you pointed out earlier with the locations, it's really good to start with locations because you can build a story out of a place, you know, what happened here, you know, and those kind yeah. of thoughts and how would they, we know we have access to this location. Let's say it's a pub. So let's set loads of our film in the pub instead of, you know, whatever, in a cooler location that we think is more sexy. Make the pub look cool and make it, make it sexy, you know. You are listening to DIY Cinema Cult. And what, what about the casting? Because it felt it felt like a really rich cast, as in, you know, I mean, everybody felt really perfect for their roles. Um, and uh, I, but I would imagine a lot of it was relatively ad hoc. And I gather from researching that not everybody was professional film actors by any means. So can you talk a little bit about the casting? Sure. Um, we had a, we, you know, we, so one piece of advice that I would give to any indie filmmaker, and it's something I, you know, we've learned the hard way, particularly as we move into sales, is that if we had known how hard it was to sell a film that doesn't have a famous cast member in it, we would have <laughs> definitely, we would have done, we would have delayed the shoot until we had a famous cast member in it. If you don't have a name in your film, you're going to be relegated to a category of the film industry that's called no cast you're going to be called a no-cast film. And mm -hmm. it's an incredibly sort of insulting thing to hear time and time again from distributors. Oh, you've got a no-cast film. How nice, you know. <laughs> it, it's like, um, you know, they regard it as like having no wheels on a car. It's like, great, you know, <laughs> looks beautiful. <laughs> it won't go anywhere. Um, so, you know, and so, and actually our gut instinct at the beginning was that we were going to work with a quite a famous Ugandan actress, um, 
and uh, who was in a very successful Disney film uh, called Queen of Catway. But um, because of her contractual obligation, she, she was up for signing with us and she's great. She was going to play the main lead. But unfortunately, because of she was by then tied into Hollywood and, you know, through no fault of anyone's really, she was unable to do it. I think if we had ended up casting her and sort of forced her to do it or something, we might be in a really different position now in terms of sales. So my strong advice is doesn't matter what it takes, get a cast member in, even if it's for a cameo role, you know, it will make all the difference later on. So moving yeah. on to what we actually, how we actually cast was in Uganda, our film is not regarded as no cast at all. We've got like three big hitters in there. So Chisachi, or more even, but Chisachi, who's the main heroine, is played by um, Esteri Tabandeki, who is, uh, is a, a well-known theatre actress, very talented. Then in the lead sort of villainess role, we have Rahema Nanfuka playing Angela, who's a, sort of a hustler character. And she's like widely known on TV and yeah, just absolutely superb actress. And then we have this guy, I don't, even remember, I don't know if you remember in the, bar scene there's a, an older guy who talks about what a mzungu means what does the what's the meaning of the word mzungu is white man yeah. the white wanderer and he's played by abby machibi who is uh, kind of a legend and uh so an abby abby runs a tv network he's in every film and you know so he's huge and then finally the priest the pastor who mm. is um normally a comedy actor called andrew Benin chibuka uh, he's very, I hope, very sinister in our film. He's quite <laughs> jovial, but quite evil at the same time. Is uh, Andrew? Yeah, Andrew's a sort of. He's a. He does all the kind of carry on films in Uganda. So wow, that, <laughs> that's really kind of dark casting. Because uh, no spoilers here, guys. But yeah, I mean, what he ends up getting involved in in the film is pretty evil. We wanted to have a dig at the church, I'm afraid. I'll say that without shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, no, I, th I, I did think the cast was amazing and there was a hell of a lot of authenticity coming off them uh, that I felt. And so mm -hmm. hearing that they are kind of big names back in Uganda doesn't, doesn't come as any surprise. They were fantastic. Um, also, the film looks amazing. You've got a real strong aesthetic going on, amazing use of colour, there's amazing sequences, the hallucination sequences. What was your kind of ambition going into it? Was there a kind of visual kind of language or look that you wanted to go for? Absolutely. So um, just a very quick word, because I think, um, you know, besides casting, choosing your crew is the most important thing you're going to end up doing, isn't it? You know, so mm. if you, you know, and Dan, the director, was very keen uh, to employ as many. So I let Dan, because he's more experienced than me, do a lot of the key choices in cast uh, in crew uh, selection but we both agreed and Dan you know as much as me that the vast majority of the crew must be Ugandan because we want it to be a Ugandan co-production and not just pay lip service to that but to put them in senior roles so the art director is Ugandan um, the costume designer and makeup designer and she led a team she's Ugandan very very talented worked on big productions um, locations manager, etc., or Ugandan. Um, but the cinematographer had to be, for Dan, had to be someone who was really talented and to the level that he needed. And didn't matter how experienced they were, they just, their showreel had to be shit hot. And Ezekiel Romero, who's a Spanish guy, he's quite young, you know, he's in his 20s and um, not very oh, wow. experienced, but 
my God, he is so talented and was able to work with very limited lighting in very, very difficult circumstances. And it's something that, yeah, reviewers and viewers have said time and again that, you know, that the, the cinematography gets the, the, you know, very, very high scores. So I would again say that's something that one should never, ever compromise on. And um, I am sad that East Africa, we did look in, in a lot of portfolios in East Africa and we didn't find anyone who quite nailed the look we were going for. Uh, okay, so just a quick word on why why is cinematography neglected in Uganda? And I think it's a really interesting question, and it would apply probably to other cinema scenes in in countries that have less money. When you're shooting on very low budgets, you don't have a lot of options for lighting, and you have to be very adaptable. And people end up doing like all the same job. So most cinematographers we worked with in Uganda prior to that on music videos and short films were basically, they would do the lighting, they would do the cinematography, and they had very a specific set of skills in, in, in that range that they would bring to every single production. And it's odd because in all other ways, Ugandans are very adaptable when it comes to film, but they, weren't, they didn't have a very good range when it came to cinematography. So that yeah. was the, the one thing where we brought in an outside, um, uh, you know, someone more experienced. So, yeah, I mean, um, I'm glad you like that. I, I think that, but there's a lesson there as well, which is... Um, I think that people, when they're coming to shoot films in Africa, and let me just speak for Uganda, but if you are coming from a, uh, from Britain or the US or whatever, and you're going to shoot in a country that's, much, that, that's financially disadvantaged, has a less developed film scene, um, hire as much as possible locally, but be prepared to bring in one person to do a specific thing that you're concerned about. It's very important that you employ locally because they need the work and they need the experience, but don't compromise on that point. You know, get a really good producer. If you're gonna shoot in a, in a foreign country, make sure that your local producer uh, is given the power and the authority to hustle on your behalf and don't try bossing them around and telling her what to do, but mm -hmm. make sure that she has the freedom to be flexible and, uh, and has the authority to feel like it's her movie as well. And that we gave that kind of authority to Daniel, Samalema Daniel, and he did a terrific job. He knew what we were looking for and then went and freestyled and got it. I'm guessing it's not like London where you've got uh, each local authority, you've got to pay your 90 quid an hour to kind of go out on the street with a camera or, you know, you're, or you're OK if you're on one street because it only costs 90 quid a day or you, but you cross the road and suddenly it's um, 500 quid a day and you need the police there and that costs another 2,000 quid. I'm guessing it's not like that working in... In yeah. countries like Uganda, no, it's not. It, it's not as tied up, you know. And you, the main thing is to interact with people that you're going to be inconveniencing in the most respectful way possible, and to, where possible, include them in the process so they're they're getting something out of it. Um, so, for example, you know, when we were shooting at the bar scenes, we were shooting a lot at night around that area. So we got the people who normally go to the bar to come in and we paid them to be extras and we um, involved the bar very thoroughly in the whole process. So it wasn't just like we were renting a location, but made sure that they were benefiting from it, got mentions in the credits. And then when it comes to shooting on the streets and in local areas, we would involve all the shop owners and bar owners and make sure that we bought drinks at their place and gave them something small but satisfactory. 
And then, you know, when it came to shooting up country, which is where we did most of the shoot, was in the village and in this Crater Valley Lakes place. Uh, we worked very closely with the local community. So we had a, actually had a small unit, like three or four people who engaged with local schools and made sure that they had what they needed in terms of teaching materials and things like that. So we basically supported the local infrastructure, not that they were even making the film, but so that we wouldn't, we didn't come across like people who were just coming in, taking what we wanted and leaving, but trying to understand what the problems were facing the local community and, and making small contributions so that, you know, cynically you could say so that it didn't interfere with the filmmaking process, but also so that we left a positive footprint and, you know, they, they didn't feel like we exploited them in any way. It's a different set of kind of, it's much more informal, the regulations you're dealing with. They're more like local culture, local, how do we do stuff around here? Well, if you come in, you treat people with respect, you engage with the local population. The street scenes in, in Uganda were great. It felt, that's interesting to hear that that's how you went about it to kind of get that kind of communication with them. And I guess yeah. in India, with the stuff in Mumbai, was that, um, was that slightly more guerrilla in terms of the shooting? Yes and no. I mean, um, in Mumbai, they had local fixers. Uh, right. So they would deal with um, specifics on the ground. It was also a much quicker, more, yes, it was very career in that way. That mm. really was sort of in and out, leave no trace. Um, mm. But yeah, there were, there were obviously local uh, issues to deal with. You know, there, 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 there was a big warning. You know, if you do want to do guerrilla stuff, be prepared. We weren't prepared. And that we suffered a lot in post-production because we had to redo all the sound. We had to, like, really, you know, do heavy editing to get what we wanted out of that footage. So there's a kind of myth that career filmmaking is a bit easier. It's not. You know, the, the mm. more career it is, the harder it is in post-production. So yeah. I would never go career unless I absolutely had to. And in that situation, we did have to. This is, it's a DIY cinema podcast for DIY filmmakers. The DIY cinema cult. How much of the post-production was kind of um, uh, done in Uganda? Was, was that was part of the edit process happening there or was, or was Dan doing that sort of stuff in London or how did that kind of... Well, it was a real mix actually. So, um, the, the video editing was all done in London um, because uh, that's where Dan was based at the time. And he's he's not a director to hand over a project to someone, you know. He wanted to be hands-on all the way. And he, there was so much troubleshooting, to, you know, so much to fix that you couldn't leave it with someone else. They'd fix it wrong. So Dan, <laughs> Dan spent a long time, yeah. I mean, post-production took over a year. And um, wow. he was editing for you know, perhaps six months of that. And then um, the sound design was very much between London and, and Uganda. So for example, all the ADR, which is the dubbing of the sound onto bits of footage that, you know, had to be re-recorded, all of that was done in Uganda. Um, um, most of the kind of atmospheric noise, the Foley sound and the crowd scenes, uh, almost all, like 95% of that was created in Uganda. And so what was really exciting was this brilliant interaction in post-production between uh, a London sound designer who's very experienced, Richie Hughes, fantastic guy, uh, who, you know, really went crazy for us working on this nightmare project over a long period of time. And he was in constant communication with Wana Benjamin, who's our fantastic um, Ugandan sound designer, who actually is like a dancehall producer. 
probably added to all of the sense of the authenticity of the whole thing and uh you know the sort of richness of it and i think that's often the case with low budget is um you lose richness you know when you're on a tight schedule and you are pushed against it you end up shooting plot 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 mm. and then you fill in the gaps and i think what i noticed about this film was it felt it had a lot of texture a lot of aesthetic a lot of um you know, uh, a lot of what I think the kind of mood was created was from all of those extra elements, the sound, the the visual kind of tapestry and all of the locations. And then, of course, you know, the sort of musical aspect. And I think that sort of, again, it's a way to elevate it beyond your budget level, which mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, listeners of this podcast will certainly appreciate, you know, sort of understanding those yeah. things. And I mean, so, you know, as a producer, if you had to give a kind of a headline set of tips, you know, everyone loves a top three. Mm. But if if you're thinking as a producer, but also as a writer of a of a kind of a no budget, low budget Mm. uh, feature feature film, what are your kind of headlines? First of all, as you're preparing your film and you're even at the script stage, really think about cast because. The cast is going, having a strong cast member will help you sell the film, number one. And it will also help you to um, build the other acting talent around that central cast member. Or if they're being cast as a minor cast member, you, it will just simply help with sales. But it's so bloody important. If some, You see, that's the one thing. If someone said, what's the one thing, I would have said cast. Yeah, because it will help you to sell your film. It's so depressing. And if you want to make a an art house film and you don't care about sales, you're just going for festivals, then you don't need to listen to that so much. But if you do want to sell your film and you have even half an eye on the market, for God's sake, get a name that you can stick on the poster. Number two, um, I would say that Make sure that you've got, yeah, I would say cinematographer is my number two. Make sure you've got a shit hot cinematographer because it doesn't matter how good your script is. If your film looks a bit pants and they don't know what they're doing with lighting and, you know, like we've all seen films where, like indie films, where the lighting's really out in certain scenes and you just can't see what's happening or it's overlit and looks fake and it completely ruins the vibe. And... You know, when you strip everything away, cinema is just photography. When you strip everything else away, like when you say, what is cinema at its essence? It's visual art. That's what it is. Video art at its essence. So mm. it's more important in the end because than the script or, you know, dare say it's even more important than the cast when it comes to the art of your film. So get your art right. Get your film looking as beautiful as possible. And that means having a good cinematographer. Even if you've got, you haven't got any money for lights, your good cinematographer will make your, any, whatever you have work. He'll even make it work without any lighting at all. But without mm. that him or her knowing what they're doing, you're screwed. You can't do anything. You can't make a good film at that point. The third one I would then say is sound design. Is that I would say you need more time than you think with sound design and you and there's no you can spend as long as you like on it you can keep on working on sound design almost ad infinitum because really convincing sound is going to make your audience believe they are in the place that you've situated them and then when you get into the more wacky creative darker corners of sound design and you think of people like david lynch 
sound design then goes on and creates a whole new atmosphere and mood and puts a supernatural or tropical spin on what you're doing that is so subtle that you often, if you're not, you know, and I only really realized this having made a film, that when you remove those sound design elements, the scene feels really flat. Add them in again, my God, there's your texture. There's the feeling that you're actually in that church. It's because your obsessive, compulsive sound designer freak has like spent years researching the precise reverb for the kind of building that you've, you've set that scene in. And it really matters. I think that's absolutely true. Bad sound can impact on the way a viewer sees the picture mm-hmm. and it in- interprets the acting. It can have an impact on everything, you know. Yeah. Mm. If, yeah. if if you if you want to test that theory, I always think just put the Benny Hill theme tune over any scene <laughs> and see if it still works. Basically, it never will. It no. never will. Or suddenly it will be transformed to an entirely different level that wasn't previously understood. Could be but, better. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, then on slightly lower ranking, but it's a bit unfair to do it like this. But, you know, I would on the well, just following on from that point, actually. um, Yeah, like having a you don't have to have a good soundtrack, like you don't have to do a Tarantino and have all these classic 70s tunes on there. But like a unity of um, composition and a unity of like mood music and and everything else that's happening in the film make your uh, soundtrack and your original soundtrack like part of the texture of what's happening on screen. I definitely yeah. noticed in your film you use a lot of. I think I went to a sound designer um, lecture once, uh, and he talked about diegetic sound. Mm. Yeah, your diegetic film and non-diegetic. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of use of that in your film, as in you know, the music is kind of in situ in some way, you know, he's in the bar and there's the track in the background and it's giving an atmosphere, but at the same time, it is clearly, you know, there's some story going on in there. There's some, uh, you're pushing the story forward in some way by using that specific track. So I thought it was quite an interesting blend of that in your film. Yeah, there there was a nice part when they were on the bus ride Mm. and there was some being used but it, you were very aware that it could be coming from someone's radio or, or maybe maybe there was a shot before they were on the bus that just went into my brain that you could mm, see it on yeah. a, but anyway they're on the bus and it's it's a, it's a musical montage so to speak mm. but it's done in a way mm. that the music is coming from them from the place from the bus from you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. absolutely yeah. i think it's just another layer of reality and then when you rupture that it's another way of pulling people back into the kind of more classic cinema territory so, um, I mean, in terms of uh, your film, uh, what kind of stage is it at? I think, um, you know, you, you gave us a sense there that we obviously we've, we've, the film is finished, but where, where are you at? When do you see a release? What What's this last bit like? I mean, you know, again, mm. from the kind of indie perspective, a lot of people, they don't understand this bit at all. Yeah. They may understand how to, to write something. They may understand how to pick up a camera with their mates and to film something and they may well now know how to edit and they might even know how to do sound design and graphics and that kind of stuff because it's all accessible these days but the next bit is the bit where really that just seems like a dark art to most people it seems like a invisible secret code so (laughs) you know now you're in that zone what 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 is your what where is the film at and what what kind of uh can you kind of tell us about that that for the indie filmmaker so um First of all, you have to identify what you are in the film market. 
So you finished your film. Are you then a genre film? Are you an art house film? And I'd say broadly, those are the two main categories worth thinking about. Uh, um, leave alone documentary for a minute. And I'm sorry, Aaron, because I know that's your thing, but... Uh, well, not really. Actually, funnily enough, actually, uh, you know, I've I've done fiction stuff, but this this documentary that I'm making is um, is my first documentary. So uh, okay. I'm definitely coming from the perspective of uh, of you know narrative. But um, okay. So, but anyway, yeah. In narrative terms, then I think broadly speaking, you have to identify: are you art house or are you um, a genre film? Now, if you're art house you're you're screwed in one way and you're sorted in another way so you're screwed because very few people are going to pay money to see your film and um you don't really have even an outsider's chance unless you're a, a, a well-known name or you're really lucky and you win big at a big festival then you might sell your film so th this is my understanding by the way so please like anyone listening to this feel free to just say bullshit you know because but it's just what i learned in my perspective so if you if you are that art house film the best thing you can do is to like chummy up with as many people from festivals as you can get to know festival programmers cultural writers bloggers and all of that and like make network like crazy to build up this like really cool artistic network of people who really admire your artwork that you've created and focus very much on those sectors, festivals, bloggers, media, and so on, tastemakers in the art, artistic sense. Um, and just do as many festivals as you can. And then if you score, like, and you get featured at festivals, then you need to milk that cow, get as much media coverage of it as possible, and try and get some kind of introductions to people like, you know, art house uh, TV channels and... Uh, people who will platform your film anywhere like that. And then what you're really hoping for is to get funding for your next project, which will be another art house film, but someone else will be paying for it this time, you know, film for or whatever. So that's the art house route. It's mainly festival focused and culture, culture vultures, you know? Um, then um, if you're a genre film, then you're, you have to sell your film. And so we earlier touched on the importance of cast, which, you know, is essential. It's sort of 90% of selling a film, actually, unfortunately. So if you, if you haven't yet begun shooting and you haven't yet begun casting and locked in your casting, I would say, honestly, if I was with someone in the room, I would say, stop what you're doing and get a name in there. Just do whatever it takes. Cut out a quarter of your locations and replace them with one cast member even if he's only on screen for five minutes, it will help you to sell your film. And that's what sales is what counts in genre filmmaking, um, unfortunately. So um, because the genre filmmaking is focused on, on market, it's focused on people looking at the poster going, that looks cool. It's got a cool name. It's got someone I know in it. I'm going to watch that. It's as simple and stupid and base as that. But, <laughs> but then when they're watching, you can blow their mind. And you can do something yeah, really cool, yeah. but you've got to get them watching and they're going to stumble across your film on Netflix or Amazon Prime or in Tesco in the DVD rack. They're not going to be like out there going, oh, I wonder what film Aaron Trin is making next. You know that? You know, <laughs> yeah, they are. Of course oh, they sorry. are. I mean, bad, bad example. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like, um, unless you're a really, really, like, so, so, you know, art house films are, mainly driven by the, the, the author of the film, the auteur, whereas genre films are mainly driven by the cast of the film. 
it's a basic key difference. So when you're like like moving into sales as we are now, we then have to understand who's our audience. So for Imperial Blue, what we're now looking at is like finding the many people out there who are interested in Africa, the many people out there who are interested in psychedelic drugs, the many people <laughs> out there who are adventurous of spirit and who like watching something a bit thrilling set in an unusual location, and then trying to find out how we can reach that audience. You know, you do need to have a budget for PR. And, and I would say that, so for an art house film, you need a budget to pay for all those festivals. So um, like, just to give you a quick flash idea for people who don't know, it costs between like average 40 to $70 to apply for a festival, just to apply. You probably want to be applying, you know, if you're an art house film for like 50, 50 festivals, you know? So that's like a budget of a couple of grand already, you know? And then when you do get accepted by the festival, you need to fly there or get a train there, or and then you need a hotel, or you need to at very least pay for food at whichever mate's flat you're staying at. You can't just go into this with no money. So you need, like, even on a low-budget art house film, you need several thousand bucks just to get your film to the festivals. Then um, if you're at R-level genre film, slightly more ambitious in terms of sales, you know, I'd say you need an absolute minimum of tens of thousands of dollars for a PR campaign. And you need, um, and you need a festival budget because you want to get into a few festivals. So um, this, the rule of thumb that I've heard from people is your promotional budget should be as big as your production budget to make sure that people are, are hearing about our film. And that would go into all kinds of advertising. It would go into like um, encouraging people to review our film and stuff like that by getting it out to them. Doesn't mean necessarily paying bribes, although it could. But it would be it would be like <laughs> making sure that that your film is is being highlighted in the right places so people are, are, are seeing it, you know. So Facebook advertising, Insta, Twitter, and so on. And then yeah, the all important festival route. If you're not playing at any festivals, how is anyone going to hear about your your film? You know, it will definitely be fascinating to catch up with you a bit further on down the line, David, to see where yeah. you know how this experience goes with the film for sure. Yeah. And also maybe get Dan on as well. I think it'd be great mm. to hear from you both. Yeah, yeah. Six, six months down the line, once the film is kind of in people's eyeballs in some yeah. fashion or other. It's so I think in previous episodes, we've talked about something again, sales agents are this kind of invisible uh, force in the film industry. And again, the DIY guerrilla filmmaker is kind of like, well, I don't need people. Like, I don't need these middlemen, these kind of, <laughs> you know, gray people who, who, who do this, but actually they, they're, they're kind of more useful than that. Right. They can be kind of real very. advocates. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just a word on it because, you know, I'm very inexperienced in this area, but my understanding is like, is um, the main point is that, you know, any industry, whether it's the music industry or the film industry is a kind of chain and each link of the chain performs something relatively valuable. Now, what a sales agent does is he takes your film to buyers. So you could do this yourself. 
And you could like basically go out there and doorstep a load of distributors and you could doorstep a load of satellite, you know, TV managers and you could do all that. But frankly, they're unlikely to answer your emails and they're unlikely to answer your phone calls with anything but a polite no, especially when you say I'm a zero budget, no cost film. So uh, what a sales agent does is acts as a kind of gatekeeper and door opener and they take a cut. And, you know, there are good and bad sales agents out there. There are good and bad distributors out there. You know, you could even get your film into distribution, but the distributor would just sit on it. And um, a sales agent, a good sales agent can be a guide to a good distributor. And once you have a good distributor who's willing to get behind your film and put a bit of money into the PR, then that's where you have a very good chance of making it, even if you are a no-cast film. So I would say before you go down the self-distribution route and say, well, I'm, I just, you know, I really resent giving these guys commission and I'm being ripped off left, right and center. Do consider whether you have enough time to really go through doorstepping everyone in the industry until someone opens that door for you. And, um, but then, you know, the flip side of it is be very, very careful. I mean, we nearly signed with a couple of sales agents before we met Jez that, you know, we, we could have actually given our film to someone who would have swallowed it whole and, not giving us anything at the end there are sharks out there so be careful i think so many indie filmmakers are so focused on the production of their film and getting the product right but they but they really have no experience or they don't give even much thought to the whole distribution and sales end the tail end of the whole product of the, of the conveyor belt so it's interesting to hear this because i think I think you probably agree filmmakers need to, you need to start educating yourself on that part of the system, don't you? Otherwise you've got to just get torn to pieces, right? Yeah. And I would say, so like if there was someone listening now, who's like really at the very beginning of the process and they've just got like either a cool idea or they've got a friend who's an actor who they know they can get into a project, which is a very, very good place to start. If you're mates with someone who was in a Harry Potter film or, you know, even much lower than that, but you happen to go to school with someone and they've said to you, I'll be in your film, then start there and approach, like, so you can, you can reverse engineer the whole process. This is how I would do it, you see. Mm. If I could go back to square one and say, how would I begin? I would begin by talking to distributors and sales agents much earlier on and saying, I'm making this amazing film. I'd probably lie and say I've got the finance already sorted, you know, and <laughs> I've got this and that sorted. But, you know, I would talk up the project as if it was already happening. And then yeah. and then start those conversations so that you then would have a fighting chance of getting a serious distributor or producer involved who would then be able to bring in the finance and bring everything else you need into the project. It's, it's easier said than done, I know. But it's actually how they do it higher up in the industry. So when you get into yeah, the, with their with pre-sales and, yeah. and that kind of that kind of thing, which is you know the big the, the, exactly. the Hollywood stuff is kind of a lot of their upfront budget is on pre-sales you know and that's obviously a relationship with the distributors that indie filmmakers could never could never muster yeah but, but, but what you're saying is interesting maybe you can to some respect muster that you maybe you can start to make those connections really early on yes i think you yeah. can and i think like like what you can do which doesn't cost you anything and is risk-free is like to imagine that you're trying to sell your film what would i be doing you know at the end so, okay, so if you work back from that point, that's where you know that cost is important. Then you work back a bit further and you say, what can I do to make my film really, really enticing so that it looks shit hot? Well, if I use this one location I spent, I actually blow half my budget shooting this one crazy-ass sequence that then is like half the trailer. 
then I've got my trailer sorted. And the, the trailer, that's where you're really selling your film. We found that most people got excited by our film by watching the trailer. And um, it's quite a pacey trailer, cut really well. If, I, if we'd thought about the trailer at the beginning, our trailer would be even better. This is absolutely horrible to any art house filmmaker. What I'm saying now is like blasphemy. What the fuck? You're thinking about the trailer before the film? No way. Yeah, I agree. If you're an art house filmmaker, ignore. But you know, if you're a genre filmmaker, you want to make sales, then think like this. Uh, I mean, we've got an interesting connection, obviously, with the free party thing. And um, mm. I'm kind of interested to ask you a little question about that um, in terms of what skills do you think you learned from years kind of you know helping a sound system on the road traveling those kind of diy skills that you got what has how has that translated into making a film like this because i think it feels to me like there's a lot of uh, overlap with those sort of skills so superficially when you look at people setting up an illegal rave um, it looks like they're a bunch of kind of freaks on drugs who don't really know what they're doing and you know, it, the party almost happens by accident. But what they are is they're people who are able to, like, freestyle with anything they have at hand. And particularly with guerrilla filmmaking, indie filmmaking, that's essential, that you don't have the full range of tools that professional filmmakers have. So people who've lived in squats and have had to rig up their own hot water or their own locks and things like that, just at very short notice, of naturally going to be very good on a film set because they're not going to turn around and complain like, oh, I haven't got the tools, I'm not going to do it. You know, they're going to say, this has to be done, how do you do it? Then I think there's a kind of um, uh, slightly um, disrespectful attitude towards authority that is a, ver is, a, is a great help and a great hindrance on a film set. So where, where the kind of maverick character of the free party scene, the squat party scene is useful is being able to go into an area and just pull out your kit and start filming the same way, like without much respect for like the environment. And, and I don't mean to say that if the free party goes didn't have respect for the natural environment as in the green environment, but you know, in, for example, going into Acton and doing a party in a warehouse and you're not going to break all the windows, but you're, you're also, you're going to say, look, this warehouse is here. It needs to be used for a party. So that kind of maverick spirit of like making use of a location for your ends and to delight people culturally trumps some kind of spirit of ownership of the warehouse. I think that that is in there, that maverick anti-authoritarian spirit is very useful for a, for a DIY filmmaker who wants to just go into a location and get what he needs without being too scared about being arrested for it. But then the flip side of that is you need to be very disciplined on set and you have to respect the, the hierarchy. And I would say that once again, the free party spirit actually dealt with this quite well. The anti-authoritarianism in the free party scene was directed towards Babylon, towards the state, towards a kind of senseless authority. But, but um, it respected authority within the crew because someone has to make tough decisions. Okay, we're gonna switch the sound off now because otherwise everyone's gonna get arrested or we're going, to we're going to do the party despite the, that fact because the movement is more important than our individual liberty. And a leader making that decision on behalf of the people is very important because what happens then within a healthy film set is that the, the director is in constant communication with everyone and is not making a decision on their behalf without consulting them, but understands everyone's needs and sensitivities 
and then makes a decision in a very democratic, sort of anarchic democratic way. I know all the people I'm working with here. No one is a boss here, but I have to go and talk to the cops now. So I'm going to go and make that decision. Um, and, you know, similarly, I've seen people making huge sacrifices on the free party scene when it came to like someone going to prison on behalf of other people or someone deciding they're going to drive the truck for 24 hours because everyone else is sick, but you have to make it to the festival. And I've seen people making those decisions. So there is a kind of leadership you can have. So I would say the indie film sets tend to be quite anarchic in that sense. So I think that idea of following a director with a vision, I very much took from the free party scene. I'm going to follow the person organizing the party because their ideology is good. And I, I respect the cultural thing they're creating here. That's interesting. Some of those qualities you, you brought up there, David, sound a bit like Werner Herzog's film school uh, points where he says you must learn how to... Uh, you know, break into buildings, forge documents. Yeah. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> you know, so. the things you have to do. You know, you're not breaking the law for for any kind of uh, you know suspicious gain. You're breaking silly laws or silly bureaucracy yes. to get your film made. Obstacles. Right? Obstacles. Right. Um, tell us. Tell us a little bit. When I was doing my research about you as well, tell us a little bit about your uh, appearance in the news about eight years ago and your little God. jail speech. <clears throat> Jesus. Um, if so, people kind of Google you, they're going to see this probably yeah, come this, quite up high on the list. Yeah, as my bar manager said, as she resigned at the time, you become very Googleable. But um, <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, 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 I became a sort of accidental activist. I, when I was in Uganda, I was running this cultural centre, this cinema. We also used to do theatre, and um, uh, a, a theatre company that normally did NGO drama, very sort of well-meaning quite um, you know, run-of-the-mill kind of um, little dramas about wife-beating and stuff like that, you know, good, healthy NGO stuff. They came to me at one point, a couple of guys from that company, and said, we want to do a play about homosexuality in Uganda because it's in the news. At the time, Uganda had come up with a set of draconian laws determined to make homosexuality, like, even subject to the death penalty and extremists. So wow. at that point... Um, I will add, though, to be fair to even the most homophobic people, they weren't advocating hanging all gays. They were advocating death penalty for, like, sort of gay rape where you infect someone with AIDS and things. But nonetheless, we were in a very serious situation. You know, basically, things have become extremely uncomfortable for the uh, for the gay community in Uganda. And at my club, uh, cultural centre, whatever you want to call it, we were one of the only places where you actually could be who you wanted to be. And so we naturally uh, had a lot of people, freaks of all kinds, including people from the LGBTI community who felt comfortable hanging out at the club. So that with this theatre company together, I just thought, yeah, fine. They want to say something. Some of my friends are being affected by this legislation. They're being threatened. They're getting death threats. Let's do something about this. But I didn't do it in an activist way. I was much more focused instead on making humour out of the situation. Mm -hmm. So my approach was, well, if you're going to put your head above the parapet, you should be wearing like a clown mask, you know, and making sure no one thinks you're a threat. And I think theatre should be a safe space where people can discuss difficult things. So theatre is particularly good because it's live. So people are getting up on stage and they're discussing these things in front of their peers. Film is, a, is, a, is like a veil or a screen that protects people. So you can do anything on film and you're not going to see how people are reacting to what you're doing. But a play, you're immediately interacting with your community. 
Immediate response. Immediate yeah. response. And so what was really cool is like on the first night, we got banned from the National Theatre. We were originally going to do uh, a premiere at my cultural centre, a run at the National Theatre of Uganda, and then a couple of up, uptown venues in posh theatres. But we got banned. And as soon as we got banned from the National Theatre, we got into the international media, you know, these gay oh, activists yeah. in Uganda, which was bullshit. You know, I'm not gay personally, not that that matters, but I'm, they painted me as gay in Uganda. And then secondly, I was the only white boy involved. You know, there was a, a someone's contributed to the script who was English, but everyone in the production, you know, was was Ugandan, including the director, you know. And so it was just, it was, it was spun as this kind of activism, which it wasn't, but then it just spiraled out of control. But the local reaction to the play was terrific. Everyone loved it, you know, and we had people like literally, you know, clinging onto the windowsill to look in from the outside. We were packed out every night. And then we only did a short run of about eight days. Um, and then I went away for a festival in Kenya where I was DJing, came back and was arrested shortly after that. Uh, did a very short time in prison there, like a week or something. And then that was fun. Uh, wasn't as bad as English prison. <laughs> Three month trial, uh, won my case, got my passport back. And then was suddenly picked up by un unmarked vehicle, by an unmarked vehicle, guy, armed guys without any badges on, thrown in the back of a van, spent a week in a police cell near the immigration thing, and then was on a plane. Oh, my God. Wow. And it was like my life was just Shit. over in one, you know, one week to the next. It was, that was tough. But, yeah, I'm back in Uganda now. And, Wow, you, you, you had a, you had a lot of kind of big name advocates. It seemed in the, uh, I suppose the lovey, the, the lovey community world. rallied round. You had a, you mean when I looked at the list, I was thinking he can't have all of these people as personal friends. But there was a massive list of, <laughs> of you know people like you, you know. Well, that's the entirety of Red Nose Day listed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was definitely the clown in the situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But no, it was really, I mean, it was really nice to see both the theatre communities and the gay rights community kind of taking it seriously. And uh, I don't think that we made a particular difference, uh, but I think that it was encouraging to some gay Ugandan people that the world was watching briefly. Um, yeah. And there were other people who did very brave initiatives around the time. You know, there's an amazing, very, very brave gay rights community in Uganda um, organizing gay pride, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah. And the average Ugandan doesn't really give a shit. You know, the average Ugandan is a bit like 1970s Britain. It's like, they're gays, ugh. but they're not like, kill them. You know, it's there's a very select, powerful group of people in Uganda who are determined to use it as an issue to push through born again Christian agenda and, 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 and also um, win over the born again churches to... Uh, for democratic purposes to get their vote. I've written an article about it. If anyone's interested, just hit me up on, on Facebook or whatever, and I'll send them the article. Well, that, that rounds it very neatly, I think, to uh, a way to uh, flog your wares in some fashion or other. So how do our listeners uh, find out about the film and the work that you and Dan are doing generally? Yeah. So... Um, the film, so the director is Dan Moss, and if you look up danmoss.co.uk, you'll find his short films all on his website, danmoss.co.uk, and he's a terrific science fiction storyteller 
with a very good visual eye. Um, the, the movie we made in Uganda together is called Imperial Blue. And you can find it quite easily by Googling Imperial Blue Film. And you'll see our website, which has the trailer and all the details of the film. And then we have a Facebook page where we post updates, including screenings. We've done, we have actually done a few big screen uh, screenings in the UK, Rio Cinema, Raindance Film Festival. And we, we're planning on doing many more in the UK and abroad. So um, keep your eyes on the Facebook page. Uh, and finally, if anyone's interested in the musical projects I'm working on, please look up East African Records, uh, which is based in Uganda. We're a music distributor and we make a lot of videos as well, including some with hints of blue in them. Is it, is, as a bit of a tidbit, is it a real drug or is it a made up drug? Like, um, again, uh, send me a private caps. message and I'll sort you out. <laughs> over zoom i love that the yeah. idea of somehow yeah. delivering yeah. A, a made-up drug it's, it's the over zoom, zoom. yeah the zoom delivery <laughs> mate straight to your doorstep <laughs> um i think i think that um making films in um in free african countries african countries that have relatively liberal societies like uganda um you know having said all that about homosexuality that's a very politicized issue. Otherwise, Uganda is a very free, wonderful, welcoming country. Um, making films in countries in such, uh, sorry, making indie films in such countries is very advisable because you can, you can realize more on a lower budget because, you know, um, the amount of uh, regulation and, and nonsense you have to deal with in, in the UK is prohibitive. But if you went to, not only in Africa, but I'm sure in parts of Asia and South America, you'd find a similar freedom and good people to work with. And there's so much talent in Uganda, you know? We weren't able to do it without the Ugandans we were working with. So yeah, hot tip for indie filmmakers, go tropical. <laughs> go tropical, yeah. sounds good, sounds good to me. Well, Club, Club Tropicana drinks oh, are here. I'm just running out again. I've run out yeah, myself. I've run out as well. <laughs> I'm running on empty. I'm actually just eating the oranges at the bottom of the glass yeah. now. Been soaking it up. <laughs> it's it's like a pickling process. It's worth yeah. it. Worth it in the end. Mark, any last questions that you might? Have I think forgotten? I think we're. All, I know I'm all good. I'm all good. Mm. It's just. I mean, what I would say is, it's a it's a brilliant film, and, and I think people yeah. should check out your website. Like I say, I'm not sure about screenings in the UK now, but I think if we can get people to look at your trailer, get people excited about your film because it's a it's, it's a brilliant brilliant piece of work. Thank yeah. you so much, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, no, Thanks it's a, it been, a, been a real, real pleasure to chat to you. And uh, I think the listeners are going to get a great deal. I mean, I think what we've heard today is a really unique uh, insight into a totally different way of, of thinking, both from, from doing things outside of your own country, but also um, understanding things from a sort of producer and writer's perspective. And I think yeah. that's that's going to be really unique for the people that, that listen to the podcast. So um, hopefully people will get a, a great deal out of it. And it's great that we've got the, the free party connection as well. Yeah, definitely. And you might have just hooked, you might have just hooked me up with a, with a sales agent from the nice email. I hope I just so. Got. <laughs> I hope so, man. <laughs> to be a nice part of the story. So. Yeah, yeah. What we'll, all, what we'll also do, David, is, is share the uh, script of the um, film that Mark and I are trying to get uh, made together, which is a... Yeah. Um, which is a, a, a sort of dark comedy feature and uh, Mark has written and will direct and I will produce. So I'll be tapping on your shoulder for producerial tips. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it'll be, be great to hear your thoughts on the script because, I, th I mean, it's in, it's in a good shape at the moment. Mark's done a lovely job. So um, Looking forward, man. Yeah, we'll in. send it your way. We'll send it your way. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that. 
Nice yeah, one. David, lo- lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you guys. And, and, and all the best with, with the distribution and Thank I look you. forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, lovely. All right. we'll see, hopefully chat to you in six months' time or something like yeah, that with yeah. Dan and Excellent. Nice one. Well, good luck with everything, guys. Bye-bye. Yeah. David. Cheers, Cheers, bye. You are listening to the debut feature film podcast. This is DIY Cinema Cult. Oh, man, amazing uh, interview there with David Cecil. What, what did you that think was fantastic. That? I, really, I really, really enjoyed that. I think he's a great guy, a bit of an inspiration as well. And um, a brilliant movie to boot. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I was impressed with it so much so, you know, visually and everything. I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, and I mean, what I think has been really useful for, for the podcast is getting a producer's eye on yeah. uh, the DIY process. Because I think a lot of the time... The DIY process is often considered a kind of a one-person filmmaker who kind of, you know, uh, picks up the camera, who writes the script, who shoots and directs and what have you, maybe even edits. But producers obviously carry with them a whole understanding of, of the other side of the the coin, which is the how do you then get this into the eyeballs of the audience? Um, and there was some amazing stuff there. And I think particularly getting kind of David's top three as to what he would um, consider, you know, extremely important, um, I think was was fascinating and extremely useful info for our for our listeners. Yeah, I thought there was he was saying some really interesting stuff about, you know, the back end of your film project to the sales and distribution. And he touched upon that thing that, you know, maybe a lot of first time filmmakers don't really want to think about a bit of an uncomfortable truth that, you need to find ways and you need to have cast involved that are going to sell your film once it's completed. You know, maybe a lot of filmmakers think, no, I can write fantastic dialogue and my concepts are amazing and I'm a shit hot director. But at the end of the day, you need, uh, sometimes you need those casts, those key casts involved for in, order for in order for it to make sense to a sales yeah. agent. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the other thing I think he said, which again, was, was an uncomfortable truth, was the fact that you, you need the same budget again for that you had on the production of your film for the, the publicity on your film. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, we, we, we these are sort of things that we feel, maybe we feel a little bit ugly. You know, the idea that you got to flog it afterwards, you know. Yeah. But unfortunately, if you don't, uh, if we don't tackle that idea, and I think we've got to think about that for routine is, is, you know, well, who's our audience and how do we get our film into their mind in some way? We need to kind of be meme generators in some senses and, and you know, publicists in some sense, or at least get people like that on board. And mm-hmm. chances are then to, to get that, out there it's going to cost money it's going to need uh it's going to need a you know some sort of marketing yeah and it was just his you know what he was talking about about building those insurances into your production from day one you know there's the side of it where you know you've got to start engaging with an audience you know right at the start you know before you go into production on your film and also things like you've got to start building in these insurances that your film is going to sell to, to some extent at the end you know and that's i guess we need to do that with routine we need to start thinking about the audience at the back end of this project you know who is going to be buying it who's going to be wanting to go and see this film yeah and i mean i think in a way we've had those conversations haven't we that uh, that you know routine uh, because in a way it's about the kind of comedy circuit it yeah. will appeal to comedy fans so 
hopefully, you know, to anyone who's ever been to a stand-up gig, uh, uh, there will there will be an immediate audience. So, you know, hopefully we can sort of isolate that group off, discover those groups and, and kind of um, do our best to, to put it into their kind of awareness and consciousness. Yeah. Um, and likewise, you know, with with uh, with my documentary and with your documentary, it's kind of, you know, well, your, your documentary, um, Chewing Gum Man, it was it's art lovers, but it was also he was already a local hero. So, yeah, kind of yeah. Got a sense of well, I've got to play this out through the local kind of avenue um first which you did really well by putting it on in a local cinema and getting local interest yeah and that creates a bit of a buzz which then kind of starts a little wave you know starts to get infectious so absolutely i, I mean i've also been thinking about this um for my documentary as well um and it does have an inbuilt um audience thankfully a, a very dedicated audience in within the sort of free party kind of scene and and hopefully they are big advocates of the film um, uh, but it's about engaging with that audience and, and um, you know, treating them with a, a, res a sort of respect and building up a relationship with them, not treating them as potential, you know, consumers, but treating them as in some way partners in the whole process <clears throat> so that they yeah. can contribute. They can kind of give something or they gain something or they become, you know, fans or advocates of, of what you're doing because they know that in some way you're reflecting uh, something that they're really interested in. I think that yeah. um, in a small way, maybe that DIY Cinema Cult, the podcast itself, is a little bit of, of, of us building that audience with our um, potential uh, fans of routine in some, yeah, some small I, way. Yeah, I, th I think it is. And I think we that was part of our intention at, when we started this, but I don't think we realised the the importance of it, the, 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 the magnitude of the importance of it, really, when we started this. I'm, I'm learning along the way that actually having this communication and having this kind of uh, uh, putting out these kind of podcasts is a way that's building building an audience. And also connecting to the other filmmakers that have been coming on the show. So it feels like it is building a community in some way. Um, and I, I always think there's a lovely uh, phrase that Brian Eno, a big, big uh, hero of mine, who I actually have met once, uh, just name, massively name dropping there. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll tell you about the time. Yeah, I think yeah. I might add yeah. a few name drops in now as we're coming up to the end of the show. Um, <laughs> uh, Uncle Brian, I like to call him. Um, yeah. Uh, or Auntie Brian, depending on if he's dragged up or not. Um, <laughs> uh, Uncle Brian, when I met him, he uh, he had a lovely term, which I, I've always thought is um, very powerful for for kind of creative people, that, that he wasn't a big uh, exponent of the idea of genius, the idea of individuals who just happen to be supernaturally uh, talented, rising to the top and creating yeah. cultural change. What his uh, take on it was, well, you know, literally w behind all cultural changes, he described it as a seniors. So, you know, a scene is created, a bunch of like-minded community or a bunch of like-minded people grouping together. And out of that specific persons or um, projects or changes can occur. And so he, you know, he saw that as the kind of, um, you know, what he was talking about in the sort of early 70s, particularly the sort of glam rock scene was that, you know, you didn't get a Bowie unless you'd had yeah. T-Rex, uh, Sweet and all of the other bands that were in that yeah, scene. Exactly. Because it was the, the, the uh, environment 
was created to enable yeah. people to kind of be louder and be bigger. And I think that's very true of the, the sort of free party aesthetic that I'm exploring with my documentary. And I'm also thinking that, you know, creating a community as we are, um, I'm not saying we're going to create a David Bowie, but uh, let's create a scene. Let's, let's create our little scene. scene. North London, North London, new wave. Let's go. But we're international now. Tell us about all the international <laughs> connections we've had on the uh, post. Oh, we've, we've had some. We, we've had some brilliant uh, uh, people tuning in. Well, different kind, like in, we've had India yep. checking us out. Yep. We've had a listener in Peru. Big shout going out. <laughs> Big shout going up to Peru. Um, yeah, lo- yeah, loads. We've had, you know. Uh, Go on, get Lebanon. the stats. Get the stats out, and we'll yeah, do shouts yeah. out to everybody. Go on, get the stats. Oh, we've got. Let, what other countries have been listening? Canada, Norway, Australia. Big shout going quite out. A, quite a lot in the United States. Yeah. Uh, um, we're we're quite big in. Let me see. We can actually zone in a little bit on. Please say we're big in Japan. Please, please. <laughs> no, Japan have not listened to us oh, yet. Oh, Japan. No. We need we need you. We need DIY filmmakers in Japan. We do. We look Malaysia do. though. I believe we've got a listener. We've got Malaysia. Malaysia. Yeah, it's very weird. Every now and again, just a weird country. We've only had one listener, only one download in Peru. So one person has ch- tuned in once. Yeah. <laughs> Probably gone. And gone. Nah. Not for me. No. <laughs> Not for me. Maybe the word nah, DIY not. in Peruvian Spanish means something like, um, it's something, you know, yeah. yeah, sort of sex or something like that. You know, yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. We'll do it. DIY. Oh, yes. I like oh, your DIY, yes. my DIY. DIY cinema. Oh, yes. <laughs> this is my favorite life kind is of out. cinema. <laughs> The wife is out. It's time for DIY cinema. (laughs) Oh, it's it's two bellens talking about gin. Yeah. Well, they want to listen to them. When are they getting to the best bits, the sexy bits? (laughs) This is a terrible Peruvian accent. To our Peruvian listener, we are extremely sorry. We're we're not. We hope we're we're sorry for the Peruvian. But uh, I've had some difficult wanks in my time, but this is (laughs) okay. You're going to cut this bit out, aren't you? But we, okay. would, we, sorry, would be, sorry. we would be challenging as the sorry, um, the soundtrack sorry, to your um, sexual arousal, sadly. So it's definitely not I wouldn't. not the niche that and the community or the seniors that we are creating. We're, we're no. going for something. All I would not. I would not recommend using us as any kind of tool. No. In, on, on that front. No. Although maybe next week, where we where we listen to your addiction uh, track. Oh yeah, yeah. Indeed. I reckon a couple of people could get a bit into themselves listening to that thing I found terrifying from Baby's interview was um, when, when he said uh, the idea that if your film has no stars in it, uh, you're considered no cast by the air. Uh, no cast. Brutal, yeah. isn't it? Oh. Isn't, isn't that brutal? Yeah. You'd be, it's, it's like saying no worth or no, no, no point. 
Yeah. So, you know, a distribution company will say, or sales agents, I'm sorry, would say, right, okay, so you've got a, a low budget, no cast film. Yeah. So we're going to put you in the no cast You're bucket. No, ho horrible. no hopers. It's, yeah. It's, it's pretty brutal. And I mean, I'd love, I'd love it to, uh, to be kind of proved wrong in some way. Uh, I mean, it, you know, if anybody can kind of send in examples of previously no cast DIY movies that kind of pop their head across the uh, above the parapet can you think of anything off the top of your head well I, well I can in like we were talking about with um with, with Prano in a previous podcast the horror genres classic one for for having real breakthrough hit movies with no no cast <laughs> being a no cast yeah. no budget from Halloween Blair Witch Project right uh, movies like that, you know, Friday the 13th. So horror um, movies are maybe the place you can Horror movies, mm. yeah, because, like, I mean, Prano did say now that now horror has crossed into mainstream, you do get stars in, in horror movies, but it was for a long time the, the genre was the star. Yeah. So the fans would show up for horror, not for a star in a horror movie. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, well, it'd be interesting to see if any of our other listeners can think of some really good examples that kind of break the mould, because... I think the Bunuel in both of us always wants some way to break the mould. You know, when you hear these rules, you think, oh, this is the harsh reality of the industry. But surely yeah. there is a way to, to break this. But they're, they're still very valuable lessons nonetheless to kind of bear in mind. Yeah. I mean, what I took away of the last couple of interviews we've had, we've had like Mark Brown, who made his film, you know, off his own back for all in, what was it, 15 grand yeah. or something. So when you're making a, a film for 15, you don't need to have those inbuilt insurances of some kind of cast member who's going to sell your film at the end. No. Uh, which frees you up uh, to do what you want to do. But I guess with David, his film, you need the insurance that you're going to make money at the end because it's just business. You, de you do need some cast in place who are going to tap into audiences yeah. uh, of their own uh, and just bring in, just bring the eyeballs, like you say, to your film yeah and not not the earballs but the, the, not not the earballs they're keen on in in uh our, for our one uh strictly just the eyeballs Peru. yeah they, they're they're yeah. looking for the the earballs and they they got the uh, <laughs> they got us a pair of balls instead <laughs> <laughs> sorry peru peru come back we'll do some peru peruvian content love to see uh, a one minute film from our uh, from our peruvian listeners that that's the challenge is a freaky uh, one minute film um we've we haven't got long left for the for the channel we i think we're gonna no, we're gonna this start is it. to do the judging in the next week so we are so i think maybe next episode should we announce the winner i think that basically um the next over the next week once this podcast is released the, over the next week we will be um be looking in so you've really got a week guys from listening to this to uh to get your entries in and um we've got a really good selection as it is but we really need those uh freaky one minute films to come flying in just to uh yeah give us come on peru come on peru we really come rooting, on peru rooting for you now and uh i might even manage to get this camera out and do one myself but in a way i'm thinking if i do one myself that's a bit i, I can't judge 
a film of I've done on my own. Well, you can't win. You can't be one of the winners. I can't win. No, no, I can't win. So then it seems a bit pointless. I think you, I think you would be officially out of competition. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, You'd be on the short film corner. But I'd still be crying because I sort of feel like I (laughs) I want to win something, you know, been so many knockbacks and no. You'll get a lollipop. You'll get a little. Oh, you'll buy me a lollipop. Oh, thanks, Mark. I love, (laughs) I I love you. Go down. All right, mate. So anyway, next episode, we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to do social distanced one from the park. Yeah. Should we do a meetup? Yeah. That's the plan. Um, A touching each other episode. (laughs) Social non-distancing oh look i've i've cleaned my hands obviously look i can, I can touch your hair <laughs> thank you listeners uh, big up peru we're gonna big up peru uh we're big in peru come, mate come we're back to peru. us peru we, we you know one episode doesn't do us justice you need to listen to all 12 uh currently uh available uh, and then you start to get the truth the deep secret truth that lies behind all of the cult output um do you, do you think the only one they listened to was the one of me in a hotel room talking about biscuits and drinking beer in the that bath? is the gateway drug really isn't Shit. It? it's the gateway drug of all of the episodes <laughs> some people don't make it to the harder stuff the other side they just they immediately have to go into rehab <laughs> <laughs> all right mate. okay mate lovely stuff lovely yeah. thanks listeners see you listeners Bye-bye. Bye. lovely Bye. on twitter at diy cinema cult or on instagram we are diy underscore cinema underscore cult seek out the diy cinema cult group on facebook or why not email us at diy cinema cult at gmail.com